another verse to share with you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. The love of Christ compels us. It goes on to tell us that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So, what's that have to do? Where, where are we leaning towards? What, do, what direction are we headed this morning? His love in us stirs us, moves us, compels us to live beyond our own opinion or self-based pursuits. We all have our own opinion. If we took time, we could share that. We don't need to. We all have self-based pursuits. Those are not necessarily sin. The problem is we want to make sure we keep them in their proper place. We want to recognize that his love is what compels us to live a life of meaning and purpose. That is a, a compulsion. That is a, a hunger, an inclination because of his love. So what I want to do today, and then we may do this even in, in, in more of a series approach, I want to look at Jesus' model for, for love and servanthood to his followers. I, I believe that's why we have the word preserved. So we can learn from him as we desire to be imitators and we want to we do things the way he did things within our own capacity. That meaning, you know, you're not going to be the savior of the world. That's taken care of. But you can respond to the savior's example and see his model. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 6. We'll settle in there actually. That's where we'll be today. But I want to give you the context for our focus and our, our main portion. And so in Mark chapter 6, we're told in verse 7 that he, he sent the 12 out uh, two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to go out. Um, he, he told them not to, you know, not to rely on themselves. It didn't take anything for the journey. Uh, no, uh, except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts. Wear sandals, not to take extra clothes, just to go out and, and see the hand of God work in their lives. And so that's what they do. You know, they go out and we're told in verse 12 that they went out and preached that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they went out. They're, they're, they're going to go. Now what's interesting is in Mark 6 verse 14 through verse 29, there's what we could call a, a parenthetical portion of Scripture, which means think of it in parentheses. So here's the flow of what's happening with the disciples. And then there's this story inserted that actually stands on its own. On its own. The rest of this chapter is not really relying on this. This is stuff that's in parentheses. It's the story of John the Baptist and what had happened there. And then in verse 30, we pick up back in flow of what was left off there in verse 13. So in verse 30, we see the rest of this story with the disciples and, and, and their following and Jesus' instruction to them. I want to read 30 through 46 together. We'll come back as our practice is to look at those verse by verse and see uh, kind of how they fit together and what God would show us. And then we'll conclude with a, a, a simple summary of this particular portion of Scripture. Let's read verse 30 of Mark chapter 6 through verse 46. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, 
come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Verse 33, But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came out together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Verse 38. But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. All right, let's move right back to verse 30 and and walk through this and just see what we can glean and gain from Jesus' model of servanthood, how he loved the people and and engaged with them. Because he's actually teaching his disciples, his followers, how to do these things. There's some really beautiful principles here. Notice in verse 30 that they had returned. They they gathered to Jesus and told him all things they had done, what they had done and what they had taught. And so it's so important because we've seen the context as we started that they were sent out. And they went out by faith, and they experienced an amazing thing working through their hands, the the work of God working through their lives. So they returned to him and told him everything that had taken place. Obedient servants, stewards, are eager to share with the master. Agreed? Obedient servants are eager to share with the master because they were given instruction. They went out as they were instructed. And when they come back, they want to tell, man, this was amazing. So we, we, we did like you said, and you told us to go. And I'll be honest with you, I was a little reluctant, Jesus, when you told me to do it. But man, this was amazing. We met this person on the road just right after we left, and we got to talk to them, and it just opened up. They opened up their heart, and we, I remember telling them stuff I didn't even study. I don't even know how I knew it. I just know, God, you spoke to them through me. It was amazing. And I know there was some exuberance, some excitement when they're coming back to tell Jesus all the things that had happened. It's there's excitement in obedience, agreed? I mean, just think about relationally, you understand that. On the flip side, a reluctant or even a disobedient steward, servants, are too busy to meet with the master. You ever notice that? So if you have somebody that's in authority over you and they give you instruction and you don't do it, you don't go walking through the hallways finding out where the boss is. You walk through the parking lot hoping his car's gone. 
You know what I'm saying? It's just it's a reality. And it's so simple as we realize, man, there's sometimes we have what we call in culture. Oh, um, uh, let's see what it's called. Um, I'll think of it here. Avoidance behavior. You know, when you avoid something, but you actually consciously are doing something. Oh, I'm doing this and this. And then you stop enough to be honest with yourself and go, I'm doing this for this reason. I'm avoiding them because. And so I want to encourage you. If you find yourself slipping to that, because most of us do. I just hope we're honest enough to admit it because otherwise we'll keep repeating it. And so when we admit it, man, God, I, I, I don't want to do it that way. I want to be able to share and, <clears throat> and approach the Lord because I'm looking forward to connecting with him. <laughs> These guys went out, they returned to him, they rejoiced with him, and they learned from him. Verse 31, he says to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Jesus is always serving his servants. And and you think about it, you're seeing in this text, they were so busy, there was so much going on, they didn't even have time to eat, which I find fascinating. Well, why didn't they? I think when they came back and they returned from this uh, mission, they were given this short-term venture in their culture. When they came back, they were excited, like, man, okay, so then this happened, and then somebody's listening in, so then they're stepping in, and about that time, the other two come back, and they're talking, and next thing you know, there's just so much, like, taking place, and, you know, he's just like, oh, man, we didn't even stop to eat, and there was so much taking happening, and can you relate to that? But sometimes you just got to recognize, you just got to hit the pause button, and we see in this particular situation, Jesus models to them what Psalm 4610 speaks of. Be still and know that he is God. So he says, listen, we're going to, let's just, we're going to take a break. Let's just kind of get to a quiet place. And I want you guys to be able to kind of speak with one another. So we see in verse 32, so they just departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But multitudes saw them departing and many knew them and ran there on foot and they arrived before they got there. So I think what's happening to a certain measure Jesus had done this with his disciples previously as far as just getting away to a quiet place. It may have been a spot he he visited, but the people figured it out. People knew. He goes over there by Savior Bay. He goes over there by the Lord's Corner or whatever, and he hangs out there. Because think about this. It's, it's like even some of our reservoirs and lakes. The Sea of Galilee, I've been able to, to, to visit it a couple times and, and go out in a boat on it. It's so common to a lot of shoreline. There's a lot of brush. You don't just have this open area with, you know, benches and, you know, shade tree and everything's just so pleasant and simple. You know, you had to kind of find this particular spot that was just right. And so the people knew that. They got there. But catch this. Where was the deserted place of rest? Because that's what he said. He's not deceiving them. He's not misled. Oh, hey, guys, get in the boat because we're going to go take a break. He said, we're going to go to a deserted place to rest for a bit. Where was it? In the boat. In the boat. A couple of hours, maybe more. They send out, and I believe that conversation continued. And then there was a time where they just had that little bit. And, you know, you may have been, like I imagine I would have been, when I seen the people on the shoreline, like, dude, I thought we were doing a retreat. I thought we'd at least have an overnighter together. I thought we could hang out with Jesus for a weekend conference. Isn't this going to be like a sabbatical with the Lord? And just hearing this just little bit, 
just had that little bit of time. But there is something beautiful about being confined in a good way. They're in the boat, and I bet those conversations were great. I bet it was very restful, very relaxing. So my encouragement is, you know, take what you get. Because really that's what they're being taught. It's like, hey, just enjoy this time. These few minutes are wonderful time. I, I just can't uh, help but try to imagine because they're excited about what's going on. It's busy. They're in the boat. They're going along. They're just talking with one another. And then they're coming up on the shoreline. And then now your attention shifts, right? What are all those people doing? There's not room in our retreat for that many people or whatever. They had to start, start working. Start, we know that because the text tells us. They arrived before the disciples. Jesus, when he, in verse 34, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. How do we see people in need, you and I? Because really you can see this model where Jesus is teaching us to see things differently. The text does not say the disciples were moved with compassion. It's very specific that Jesus was moved with compassion. I believe we can, as we've seen from reading through it, we could agree that the disciples were certainly concerned. There's a possibility they were more concerned for themselves than for the people. Because sometimes as his servants, we can be more concerned for our expectations, our perceptions, than we are for the people. And he's teaching them, like, listen, this is what he's seen. They're like sheep not having a shepherd. The people have traveled. We don't know how far because, you know, geographically, we don't know the exact location of the shoreline and different things. But we are told that they hurried along pretty fast. Uh, they were hungry for truth. They've walked the shoreline for a long ways, hoping that Jesus would be at this place. And so you just think about how he, he was aware of the whole thing, we're, we're told. And he was moved with compassion. Compassion is that action of love. You know, to say you love someone but do nothing doesn't say you love someone. It's just a sweet poetic statement. But to do something. So here he's moved with compassion. It's not that he didn't know what they're going through. We're being told he's seen people with, with a broader understanding and a broader view. So for you and I, how do we see people? How do we see people? The gospel tells us that, that God welcomed them. Jesus began to teach them. He talked to them about the kingdom of God and he healed them. So I believe in my life, I think you could apply it. You, you can just work that all out, how it applies for you. But I believe, truthfully, there, there's times as his servant, we're looking through the lens of self and don't see the detail we need to see. What do I mean? Well, I grew up, um, my dad was a, I guess you say blue-collar guy, hands-on, you know, whatever you want to categorize. He just had to fix his own stuff because he couldn't afford to pay anybody else to fix the things he broke. So he, he just figured out how to do it, you know, whether it's um, fabrication or whatever it may be. So I was around an old-school thing that you see in the museums now called an arc welder before plasma cutters and all these other cool wire feed things. And so with an arc welder, there's this intense flash, and it's bright. 
So you put on a hood back in that day that it didn't have a light reactive lens in it. And so with this lens, this hood on, you can't see anything until the arc, until the spark. And then you can see a portion of that. And, and I think it's kind of a picture that, that sometimes we're seeing, we're looking through this lens that we just can't see clearly. For those of you who haven't, you don't relate to what I'm talking about. You remember we have uh, these things that God has scheduled. We think they're, um, you know, a little too random, but they're not random, called a solar eclipse. And during the solar eclipse, you put something over your eyes so you can watch this amazing phenomenon that God has scheduled because you have to have your eyes protected. But if you have these cool solar eclipse glasses, whatever, and you walk back inside a building, you're going to fall on your head because you're looking at normal life with the wrong, you got, it's blocking your view. And isn't that, isn't that a sweet picture of the, the disciples seeing him this way, seeing the situation this way, and Jesus is like, could you see it from my perspective? I want you to see things differently because he says, he, it tells us that he's seen them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, he began to teach them many things. Would love to hear that message, but we know it through his life expression that he just loved people and served them and met them where they are as he's modeled to us. Now, look at, look at verse 35 as we work our way through this. The day was now far spent. The disciples come to him and tell him it's late. Send them away so they can get something to eat. Now, that, that seems to be a genuine concern. I believe it is. Their hearts weren't cold. They just have a lot to learn. Their perspective is, Jesus, I, I find this very fascinating. This is my weird way of thinking. What is it about their relationship with him that they didn't know he didn't know? Oh, Jesus must not know the people are hungry. Hey, Jesus, do you know what time it is? This was scheduled to end at, at, at 11, 12, 15. You're way over. People haven't, there's nobody delivering out here. There's, you know, like, how did you miss this? I find it interesting. They think they need to tell him, the people are hungry. They, they got, you, you, you've been talking way too long. Not that anybody would ever say that during any type of message. But nonetheless, you know, there's something interesting. And I love that they went to him with that transparency and truthfulness of heart. Because he doesn't reprimand them. He actually takes that to teach them and show them their genuine concern. He's now going to show them what they have to learn. In verse 37, he answered and said to them, well, you give them something to eat. And they're like, are you out of your mind? I don't know who the spokesman was. I'm pretty sure it was probably Peter because he generally is. He's like, are you kidding me? If we had a year's worth of wages, is what that number represents, it wouldn't be enough to feed everybody. How, how, what are you talking about? Because maybe you've had that point in your life. But God, how are you going to take care of this? Well, he would stir and prompt you. Like, I'm going to do it through you. Are you kidding me? I don't got enough to I don't. Have, what are you talking about? He says, you have something to give them. And they hadn't even checked their inventory yet. He tells them, well, what do you got? Nothing. Well, we, I don't know. We'll go check. 
And then they come back and Peter, I went, I don't know, I'm just speculating. You, you do your own. This is what we got, boss. 10,000 plus people, 5,000 men, 10,000 plus people. We got some bread, five loaves of bread and two fish. Pretty sure someone's going to be fighting for food. I don't know how this is going to work out. He said, go and see what you have. They looked at their resources and realized what little they had. It seemed completely pointless. Enough food for two, maybe three people, and you got thousands to feed. Thousand in, in need. Look in verse 39. He commanded them, the disciples, to tell the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they all sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. God is a God of order. This allowed everyone to receive as well as to see. It seems interesting because you, we get it, you, truthfully, when food's starting to be passed out, and it's just a mob mentality, whoever gets their first type of attitude, it's very chaotic. God is not a God of chaos. He set this earth in order. There's an order to it with a work and a move of the Spirit within it. And so he has them sit everybody down. And, I, you know, I, you know, you can tell by the way I'm sharing this. I just kind of, I want to be there. I want to kind of, with the restriction of Scripture, I want to have a healthy enough imagination that I can grasp the situation. And here's what I'm thinking. We're going to do what? We're going to set them down in groups what, so we can control the onslaught? When we don't have enough to feed them? I mean, we don't, we're, we're putting them in order. And they knew why they were putting them in order. Okay, because we're going to give them food. Well, how much do we got, Pete? <laughs> like five loaves of bread and two fish? Oh, my. And, but they, isn't this fascinating? He invites you and me to be a part of the work that he's going to do, and we don't know how he's going to do it. Yet he gets the job done. He still goes about it. So you can see what's taking place. They, uh, verse 39 and 40, we've, we've looked at. Verse 41, he'd taken the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. This is what's being presented. Blessed speaks of thanking God. Thanking God for what he has given. So he holds this up before the people. Now they can see. They're set in, I don't know the exact configuration. I don't know the slope of the hillside, whatever. But he blesses this. He breaks it and blesses it. And then he gives it to the disciples to distribute. I'm fascinated by this. Because he gives it to them. I I, want to understand. I want to, I kind of want to know how they did that. Because you know, you break it up, and then you start passing it out, and your basket doesn't ever go empty. I don't even know where they got the 12 baskets. But here they're just, and it's just, can you like, can you imagine like if we pass communion, like some people, some methods, some approach, and you, you start it down the road like, oh, I should have been paying attention. There's only two pieces of communion left. And the guy picking up on the other end goes, you fool, there's 15 people on the row. You got, you, and then it gets to the end and you still have two pieces. And 15 people have some. And you're like, that was weird. Let's try it on the next row. It's like, this is amazing. What's happening before your very eyes, something that you can't, you can't deny. You can only say this is, this is something God is doing. This is clearly and obvious something he is doing. We see from verse 40, 41, he also invites us to be a part of what he'll do. 
He's not restricted or limited to this, but he does provide from what we already have. And it seems so minimal sometimes. Your life, you, you seem like there's so little that you can, com- can commit to the Lord. Your resources, time seems so small, yet he multiplies. We don't want to restrict. We don't want to say, okay, well, God, you can, this is all I could do. We just want to say, okay, I, I, here it is. He involve, invites you and me to be involved in feeding the sheep, the people that had come. Disciples, you and I have a role in the distribution. It's just amazing because it doesn't make sense to you and me. Agreed? Like when we get plugged in or we're helping in some way, like I don't know why I'm a part of this. I don't feel like I fit in. I don't know that I'm even called to this. I don't know what I'm doing. Just keep doing it. Because there's a point where sometimes when you're trying to figure out what you should do, you should do something. Well, that doesn't make sense then. Yeah, it does. You guys remember what they used to have in this world? Uh, Vehicles that were powered by Armstrong? That means before power steering, you had to just like muscle it. So the best way to turn something that doesn't have power steering is to have it moving. When it's sitting, you're just going to fight it. So when we're plugged in, when we step in, when we just start, okay, Lord, I just by faith, I'm going to plug in in this area. Then I believe that's when we see him turning and directing and bringing clarity to our unique calling. So there's this general invitation where we have this participation, but then we bring, he brings in this personalization of a unique and a special time in different seasons. So I want to encourage you, be involved in his distribution. Realize you are not responsible for production, just distribution. He produces, he brings it. We're just there to distribute it. The message of the gospel, you don't have to promote it. You and I, we simply present it by the way we live and by the way we engage. And so we want to present it in such a fashion that it honors God. You don't just chuck it to somebody. When I was delivering newspapers as a kid, there's sometimes I just hucked it. I didn't care where it went. I did my job. I delivered it. Well, when it's in the rose bushes and the gutter's dripping on the paper, I'm going to get a call. Or my dad actually got the call. Delivered in such a way that honors the Lord and let him bring, bring the, the, the increase. Verse 42, all who were hungry were fed. They all ate and were filled. The disciples were a part of the work, even though at one point it's very probable they didn't think it would work. But yet they're a part of the work. He is now accomplishing something they never even imagined. And they reap the benefit of it. They, they were nourished, if you would, at the same time. Carrying us into verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Like I said, I don't know where the baskets came from. But it's interesting that there's 12 of them. Because we know there was probably in reference from other scripture. Speaking of primarily, not just, but the 12 disciples who you know yourself, you're one of the 12. Imagine, you're Bartholomew or whatever. And so you're doing your part, and you you just don't want to say it out loud, but like, I think it'll work. I don't know what he's got up his sleeve, but we're going to have a lot of upset people in a little bit. About 10 of them are going to be eaten, and the rest are going to be mad. Whatever's going through your head. And you're like, but yet you're just able to keep distributing halfway, third of the way, quarter of the way through. You're excited. Like, <laughs> how long is this going to last? This is exciting. This is cool. 
And then when you're all said and done, it's like, here's your basket, Bart. Here you go. Wow. Hour and ten minutes ago, I was thinking there wasn't going to be enough. And now I got my own basket full. I, I have more than I even started with. I, this is amazing. And, and I think it's fascinating as you consider it because here's like, here's this group that are going to be encouraged. He's modeling servanthood. He's exampling to them how to love people. And immediately in verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. So I don't, I speculated and pondered and wondered, why immediately? And I don't have any finished thoughts. Imagine that. I have a lot of unfinished thoughts in my cranium. But nothing that is public yet. <laughs> so all we know is immediately he sent them. I, I, I do think part of it is get them back in the boat because he sent them away to have a time to encourage one another. They had the time, and then they served again, and now they're back in the boat. And they're now talking amongst themselves. But he didn't join them in the boat this time. He's going to join them later. But he didn't join them this time. What did he do? Jesus modeled to you and me. He went to the mountains to pray, we see in verse 46. Because prayer was his joy and not drudgery. Prayer is in its most simple, purest form, his conversation with God, conversing with God. Understanding what he's done as we, we grasp that piece by piece and day by day and conveying appreciation, gratitude, thankfulness, presenting petitions, you know, interceding for someone else and all these ways to describe the variations of conversation, but it's between you and the Lord. And Jesus modeled that. I mean, he fully God and fully man. An amazing, miraculous work done right here. And, and then as he gets away, he, he, has to, he takes care of his physical needs as well. He chooses to get away with the Father. What a beautiful reminder to you and me. Now, for you and I, we have to realize that when we get away to pray, if you're not yet born again, you don't have a lot to talk about. You might have a lot to think about, but there won't be a lot to talk about. Why is that? Because he loves you so much. When you are not yet born again, and you go to God, say, hey, man, what's this and what's that? He's going to say, but who do you say that I am? He's going to bring you to that awareness of your need for forgiveness. He'll bring you to that point where you realize in your own being, you need, your, you need forgiveness of your sins. Because as you as you come into a relationship with him, and that, that happens by believing that he is right. Right about what? About you. About your sin individually and personally. Your rebellion to God, your rejection of God. And when you believe, I believe, yes, I, that has happened. God, that's me. When I realize that I personally, you know, you personally have sin, and he reveals the man, means by which you can be forgiven... Because of his grace, unmerited favor brought into your life, you agree that you need his forgiveness. You put your faith in him. So recognizing your sin, therefore you need a savior. He is the savior. I agree with you, God. And you request, could please forgive me as you instruct. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, the Bible tells us. So as you receive this 
forgiveness because you believe that you need forgiveness, the Bible tells us that we're then born again, born of the Spirit. And now as we're born again, his child forgiven by him, our conversation is deepened because this problem has been resolved. This has been dealt with. You see, some people have told me early on as a Christian, well, you don't have, God doesn't hear your prayers until you're born again. I said, well, there's a serious problem with that. Because why would I talk to him if he's not going to listen? Why would I receive if, if I have to believe first before he'll hear? I just, I, I believe this. He hears your prayers, but he brings you into a redeemed, reconciled relationship with him. And now you're born again, born of the spirit. And now you have this exuberance. It's like, a, oh God, how about this? And what about that? How do I do here? And it's fascinating because the Bible tells you and me that was that when that takes place, when you're born again, born of the Spirit, then we, it's been open. We can, we can come boldly into his presence. The Bible speaks of a place and it's conveying to you and our engagement. We can come boldly into the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need because we're born again. We're born of the Spirit. I just, the power of prayer is so phenomenal in our lives as we learn this simplicity and this beauty of just personal time with him. Jesus modeled it. I believe it's, uh, we have a greater need than, than he did if we look at it from that perspective. Hey, let's wrap it up real quickly with a simple summary. Reflecting on what we just looked at, he calls, he equips, he empowers, they went. Here's my encouragement. Learn to follow simple instructions. Go do this. Well, what do you mean? Go do this. I don't know. Do you mean today? Tomorrow? What are you going to do when I get there? You know, it's like sometimes we're like four or three. Okay, we're going to go to the zoo. What are we going to do when we get there? Do I have to go? Can I wear my shoes? Can I wear my... You know, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just learn to follow simple instructions. So beautiful. And it's liberating, quite honestly. The second point I would draw from this is Jesus is always serving his servants. Remember that. He is always empowering, enabling, equipping you, and correcting you. And there's, one of the, there's a beautiful thing that happens when there's godly correction in your life. There's liberation. You're liberated from the guilt and the shame of what you've done. And when he brings correction, you're like, oh, wow. He is always serving his servants. He's equipping us, empowering us, leading us. So it goes back to learning to lean on him. The third thing we can see from this text, learn to see people from Jesus' perspective. We don't always do that. I don't always do that. I'd love to stay as the pastor and for pastoring in this role for so many years. I kind of got that figured out. I, I, I don't brag. I don't boast. I just say to you, I don't have that figured out. I'm learning as I go. But I want to see every scenario, every situation from his perspective. I don't want longevity, somehow seniority, to be the reference point. You know, some people say, oh, I've been doing this for 30 years. Like, I have met people who have been doing things for 30 years and they're still messing it up. They never have been doing it right. Somehow they managed to stay in business and somehow seniority verifies their, how good they are. I don't know why you haven't went broke yet. Longevity doesn't mean that in, in, in a sense of you and I. So anyway, let's learn to see from Jesus' perspective. Give what you have and see what he does. Give what you have and see what he does. Well, how's that done, Dan? What do you mean? Do I, you know, give up my possessions and give it to someone believing it? Here's what I would suggest. You don't own anything anyway. 
oh, what are you, you're so out of touch. No, you don't. You possess things. But even what you own, somebody owned before you showed up. And somehow you took ownership of it in our culture, but you never really owned it. You just possessed it for a season. Because he owns it. It's his. Everything is his. So we want to learn how do I not withhold what I have should be available to him in a practical and and very realistic way, as this text shows us. Here's a good example. Someone speaks to you about a need. And you look at your schedule and you realize you could fit it in. And you could help with that. And you decide to use your car to drive that person to to Boise so that they can make their doctor appointment and you bring them back. You've used your resources for his glory. You, you still, you possess it. You see what I'm saying? And there's other examples. Of course, you can, you, you realize that. Maybe just let it define this way. When I say give what you have and see what he does, don't withhold anything from him. It's his anyway. Don't withhold anything from him. Like what he has entrusted to you and you know, provided to you, let it be available to him for his purposes as well. You've got to move along. Guard against a hardening of the heart. Let me give you a verse that we didn't touch on, but this verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Interesting, isn't it? In the midst of all of this, they still didn't get it entirely like Jesus was teaching them. So beware of what I call cardio crusto where our heart just starts to kind of dry up a little bit. And because we've seen people this way or situations like that, we, we become a little presumptive and, and, and maybe judgmental. And it's just, it's just, it's just let just guard against the hardening of the heart. The last one, power from God comes through your relationship with Jesus. Power from God, because you and I, we, we need to experience the power of God that comes through the person Jesus Christ. It's the person, the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But it comes through this relationship with Jesus Christ. That is how we know the power. Many times I know there's been times I have not experienced or literally relied upon the power of God. I knew the principles. I knew the doctrine. I knew what to teach. But I didn't learn to, to lean and rely on the power of God. And that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ learning to pray privately, learning to be transparent and truthful, learning of the character and the nature and the wonderful ways of God to where that changes our lives and we experience his presence, his power working in and through us. I'll have the worship team come up. I'm going to close with one more verse, uh, an exhortative verse, a commandment Jesus even said of himself, himself. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know this wasn't a new commandment to love one another, correct? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Well, what's he talking about? It's like, no, there's a new way to do it. It's through his love that we can love one another. Why don't we stand together? We're going to close in a, a song of worship. At the end of that song, um, the worship team will continue to play and kind of provide some live background music, so to speak. 
but I want you to be sensitive to what God would speak to you. Maybe even just where you are, you just kind of linger a little bit and, and kind of sort some things out, whatever he's shown you. Perhaps as you're here, you realize, I really need to pray this through. I need to speak with somebody. So um, uh, Kim, my wife Kim, and then as one of the elders also will be over here to my left to pray with you if you would like that. So as the song ends and the, the instrumental sound continues, you know, just take that time. Maybe you do want to come forward. Maybe you just need to step out into the lobby and fellowship and enjoy one another. I know if you've got kids, you need to get them. So that's one thing you'll be doing, of course. But ultimately, be open to what God would do in your life. Be encouraged by what he is doing in this world. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word, for this truth. And thank you that you have modeled to us how to serve, how to love. You haven't been overbearing. You haven't been burdensome. You've given us just these beautiful glimpses and insights into how you see people and how you would instruct and teach us. And so, Lord, may we be people that are known not because of our doctrinal division, not because of our denominational bias, but according to your word, may we be known as people, your people who have love one for another. Show us how that's to be. Show us how it's to be seen and then lived out, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. We sing this song to you in adoration and worship. In your name we pray. Amen.